what we're going to do this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I encourage you to join me there in the first um, four verses. It, it is a text that you really don't need a preacher to explain. It is just straightforward. And so I'm going to, no, I'm not going to just read it and then stop. I'm going to explain anyway. But uh, these words are simple and yet very deep. You can understand it on a basic level and know what it is saying, and yet you could spend the rest of your life trying to know what it is saying. 1 Corinthians 15 says, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you're saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul said that a lot to the Corinthians, by the way. He kept asking them, are you sure? You really, you really believe that? Are you sure of that? He kept bringing that to their mind. I guess as a pastor, I can't help but stop right there and say that. What about your belief? These things we're going to talk about this morning. Do you believe this? Because this is the way it goes. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. Heavenly Father, we are entirely dependent upon you right now. When we open up your word, it is your word. You are the one who sends it forth. You are the one who accomplishes what you would have it do. You are the one who causes the results in our hearts, our lives. You give us the ability to understand and to believe. In that, we are completely dependent upon you right now as we open up your word. And everyone in our room here today needs to hear what you have said. So, open our hearts, open our minds. And Lord, help us to know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage I just read to you, verse 3 and 4. This is the gospel. This is a gospel message. This is our gospel message we proclaim here at the Hillsdale Bible Church. Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. And he was risen the third day, according to the scriptures. If you do not believe that, you do not believe any gospel at all. For that is the gospel. You can't have a piece of it. You can't have a little piece of this and a little piece of that and put it together and somehow come up with a gospel all your own, manufactured uh, kind of you know, customized to your own dealing. An incomplete gospel is not good news. There is one gospel, and the scripture tells us what it is, and that's what you just heard. And it's very important. As I've been mentioning this for the last couple of services, we, we met on Good Friday and we went to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This morning at uh, 8.30 this morning when the sun rose, <laughs> did you see it? No? Well, uh, we went to this passage, 
1 Corinthians 15. Here we go to it again. When Paul wrote this, he says, it is important, because by it you have been saved. No other gospel, whatever they want to manufacture it to be, can save you. This one will. That's it. That sounds simple. It sounds very straightforward, but it's the way God has written it. (laughs) I didn't write it. He did. That's what he said. It's this gospel. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. And no man can come to the Father but through him. That's the gospel. We have to believe that because that's the only way we can be saved. It's of first importance to us once we know it. And that's what Paul said. Verse number 3. I deliver to you that which is of first importance. First importance. I pray that's the case in your heart. I hope that's true of your life. This is the first important thing to me. Because I take no substitutes for this passage. None. By it, I have been saved. And that's why I declare it to you as I do. The essence of the gospel is these three pieces. Christ died for our sins. That's very specific, by the way, isn't it? By the way, also very personal. He died for our sins. He was buried. We talked about that about an hour and a half ago. He was buried, an essential part of the gospel story. Because you have no resurrection unless you have a burial. And now we look at the part in verse number 4, the exciting part we always say, He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now I do want to make a little point here, and I think it's simple. But I think it's exciting, too, at the same time. Uh, Usually I want to build up to this, but I just want to hit you with it, okay? I just want to start right here and work from there. Um, When we talk about Christ dying, the Greek text here, don't turn off, I just said Greek, don't stop, forget it. We use this in English, too. It's a past tense idea, right? He died. That's done. That's complete. It it marks it down as a fact. Right? That's it. Christ died for our sins. That's a fact, folks. That's not a question mark in God's Word. It was done. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Then we come to the next verb, and there's three verbs here. The second one is, He was buried. That also is the same tense in the Greek. Done. Buried. Completed act. It's a fact. He was buried. Now, you go to this third verb in verse number 4, and it says, and he has been raised on the third day. The way we read it, here in New American Standard Version, and he was raised. We had he was, he died, he was buried, he was raised. We say, okay, well, that's good. There's another fact for us, right? Here's where it gets fun. Paul changed the verb tense. And it's such a little thing in the English we don't notice it, but I'm ready to explain it to you. I said I had to start with this. It's called the perfect tense. All right? What that means is, yes, he was raised, like we would in the past tense, but it has 
results that go on and on and on. It's kind of like all the other ones with a dot right here. He died. He buried. He was raised. And that means something important. Because that change of a verb tense means he will never have to repeat that again. That's our, we call it the perfect tense. I love just the idea of it. Wow, that's perfect. But it's more than that. It is so done, it has lasting results. I call it in my Greek classes, the permanent tense. And that is the beauty of the word you're looking at this morning. When Christ raised from the dead, when he rose from the dead, that was never to change again. It's that kind of a tense. When Paul wrote that, I think he broke his pen. He had to get a whole new one just because he got excited writing down that word that way. You save it for important purposes. That was it. And I'm so excited to start with that because that's the expression we have in this text. It demands an exclamation point, really. It needs to be put in dark print. It needs to be underlined. It needs to be highlighted with a yellow marker. It needs to be seen. It's not just that he, he raised from the dead. Yeah, okay. He raised and he stays alive, is what it means. It's permanent. It's permanent. The resurrection is permanent. There's a, reason, a lot of good reasons for this. A lot of personal reasons for us that it is this way, too. Because he wasn't just raised as a fact, but the results of that resurrection continue to this moment. That's why we could sing all these songs like we did. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Why could we sing such words? Because it's true. That's what the tense is telling us. He is risen right now. He's risen and he stays risen. An enduring quality. It just screams off the page. Is your pastor expressing that okay? It just says it. He is risen never to die again. Hebrews 7 verse 24. I read this to you last week when we were in Romans. And I bring it to your attention again this week. Because it's so vital for you as a believer, for me as a believer, to know this verse. In Hebrews 7, verse 24, and then into verse 25, speaks of Jesus. Jesus has a position. He has a position as our great high priest. Now, we've got a whole bunch of Old Testament stories to explain that, which we're not going to do at this time. But the scripture just says he, he fills that position perfectly. We needed somebody to represent us before God, and he does. All right? He's our high priest. And this is what it says. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, you see that? He continues forever. He holds the priesthood permanently. Now, the contrast is real simple in the text. Because Aaron was a high priest, and he died. And his son Eleazar was a high priest, and he died. And his son became the high priest, and he died. And you go through a whole story like that for a couple thousand years. High priest died. High priest died. High priest died. 
Now, if your faith was in that high priest, it's only going to last until the guy dies. Then you've got to start all over again with a new guy. Jesus Christ being our high priest, it keep, he keeps the position permanently. You see what it's saying? Permanently. Why? Because he's alive. Is he likely to die and somebody take his place? No. That's where he starts here. And that's why it gets rather personal. He says in verse 25, Therefore, therefore, since he retains his office forever, therefore he is able to save forever, or to the uttermost you might have out there. He says forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You hear it? That's what it's saying. Does it get personal? Yes. Does it affect me? Oh, yes, it does. Because Jesus Christ is alive today. Because He's alive today, He's praying on my behalf. He is my high priest right now. He is the one who saved me, and that salvation will last forever because He does. That's what you're looking at. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we saw this a little bit while ago, but there Peter is preaching, and these are his words. This man delivered over the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross. He's talking to the Jews. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Impossible. You see, the resurrection makes a very clear point to us. Up to this point, what we've seen so far, death has no power over Christ. And Christ has power over death. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I also read that this morning, where Jesus says, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. That's the Savior we're talking about today. You see, the resurrection is all about permanence. It's all about permanence. And if you have the promise, which you do as a believer in Christ, if you have the promise of resurrection someday because Christ was risen, your resurrection will be like His. And guess what that means? It's permanent. Isn't that great news? Oh, it's great news. I always felt sorry for Lazarus. You ever think about Lazarus? Poor guy. Died. Well, he's a friend of Jesus. Jesus came and to the tomb and, and had him move the stone and he called forth, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came up out of that tomb and he says, untie him. You know, that was an exciting day, wasn't it? Here Lazarus is, is brought back to life. He's taken back home and they have dinner, no doubt, and everything else. And then guess what happened many years later? Poor guy died again. I always joke, but I think, wonder what his insurance agent thought. Now, wait a minute, once is enough. You know, here we think through this, is that we look at life and such cure, don't we? From what we know, we're used to this 
this globe, this, this earth. We know life and we understand death and we see these things. The concept of forever is huge. The concept of permanent. How many things do you have that's permanent besides the marker? It's not even permanent then either, is it? This is permanent because of Christ. That's the point of the gospel. It's so much bigger than what we're used to. So much bigger than our minds can even conceive. We look at a passage and we see, He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Yes, He was raised on the third day and that never has changed since. And it never will. That's the permanence of the resurrection. Consider for a minute the power of the resurrection. Just in the verb tense, it's powerful. He was completely, perfectly, permanently raised on the third day. But here's the power of it. And I'd like to express this to you this way. Just a little tidbit of all this. It's, a, it's what we call a passive verb. That sounds really different in our thinking. We don't think passively too often. When, when we say he died, now that was really interesting because that's an active verb. He died. If it was passive, it would have said, he was killed. But it said, he died. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why does it say it that way? Well, because Jesus controlled death. Did you know that? Do you know what he said about his own death? Here it is. I'll read it to you from John 10. See what you think of this. John 10, 15, 17, 18, several verses in there. He says, even as... The Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who's in charge right there? He is. And then he says in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Who's in charge there? Jesus is. In John 10:18, No one can take it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative, he says. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. And this commandment I received from my father. This is what it said of his death. He died. He, that was his doing. Yes, he was on the cross. Yes, the Romans put him there. Yes, you can put into all the factors of what took place that way. He laid down his life. He laid down his life. But when it comes to the next verb, he was buried. He didn't do that himself, did he? That's a hard thing to try to do on your own. He was buried. That's what we call a passive, because he couldn't bury himself. Others had to do it for him. Are you ready for this? He was raised. That's also a passive verb. And you say, "Uh uh-oh, what's that mean? Does that mean he didn't have the power to raise himself? Oh no, that's not exactly what that means at all. He could have easily, as he already said, I have the authority to lay down, I have the authority to take it back up again. That would be easy for us to say that, yeah, he did that himself. But he didn't say it that way, in that sense. It it wouldn't have been, I'm going to say this, and it might sound strange for a second, it would not have been as valuable to us if the fact was that he raised himself. I'll tell you why. Because Scripture tells us the Father raised him from the dead. The Scripture tells us 
the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And scripture also tells us that Jesus brought himself back from the dead. Okay, you ready? Here it goes. The Father, in Ephesians 1 verse 20, he brought, which he brought about, it's middle of the verse, which he brought about in Christ, whom he raised from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So the Father did it, right? Yes, the Father did it. Concerning the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapter 1 verse 3, speaks of the Son, who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit brought him back from the dead. Why is this so significant? First of all, Jesus did nothing of his own initiative. Always what his Father told him to do, he would do that. The entire Trinity was at work in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Now, I want to put it this way for you. If one person of that Trinity was at work in your life, you'd say, that's pretty powerful because that's God. How would you like all three of them to be at work in your life at the same time in the same event? I don't know what kind of spiritual math that is, but it certainly sounds powerful to me. And what we have before you is simply this, that all three of them, all three of them, not one individual, but all three raised Christ from the dead. All three. Think of the power of that display. Here's how much it meant to Paul. Paul, the the great apostle in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. He craved to understand that. He wanted to know what that was. He also said in verse 21 of chapter 3, Philippians again, he says, he's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power he has even to subject all things to himself. In other words, when you are raised someday, it will be by that same power that you will be brought to life. Does that sound pretty strong? In Ephesians, Paul prays this. In chapter 1, verse 18, 19 and 20, and this is what he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his saints, or his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing Greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wanted us to know it. What is this power? It's according to the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There's a passive verb right there that's just powerful as can be. This is God's at work. The power of of the resurrection. He's going to someday exert that power to change you forever into an immortal body. When I was younger, I used to think, is that going to hurt? I don't know. That voice of our Father said, let there be light, and there was. The voice of Christ said, come forth, and Lazarus did. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, Be alive, and it came alive. And someday they're going to say, 
arise. And I will. You see? Powerful. That's a resurrection, folks. It's a powerful resurrection. It's a personal resurrection. Have you ever considered this? When you go back to the story, and maybe if you've read it this morning, I got up early this morning and thought, oh, I'll just read through all four of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. And I did that, and then woke up a little while later with the cat asleep on my lap. <laughs> How'd that happen? Um, but you, you read the stories, and you say, yeah, okay. I know the story. Peter's there, John's there, Mary's there, and all these. Have you ever considered who did not? Jesus when I think of the resurrection being personal consider those to whom Jesus did not appear he did go to those who would believe right he went to the disciples he went to even Thomas needed a little extra help on his but uh, he went to those who were not understanding but he helped them understand he did not go to the king Did he? Was the king instrumental in his death? Oh yeah, he had him on trial. Jesus didn't walk back into that courtroom and say, Ah, here I am! He didn't go back to the Romans. The Romans are the ones that crucified him. He didn't go up and show himself to Pilate, did he? Say, hey, Pilate, here I am. I told you I was true. He didn't go back to the high priest, did he? The high priest who... Because of envy, worked this all through. The one who paid Judas, all the rest. He didn't go back to those folks. Why? Oh, did they need it? Oh, yes. But he didn't go back to them. They would not have believed. But how can you not believe? There's Jesus. He's standing right there. They know it. Put him to, how could they have not believed? Jesus told the story. He told the story about a rich man who died. And when this rich man was down in Hades, he looked up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, Abraham, just go and tell my brothers. I've got five of them. Go and tell them about this place so they don't come here. I don't want them to come here. It's torment. I don't want my brothers to come. And Abraham says, oh, we can't do that. We're not going to go. And he says, but you know what? If, if one of you goes, send Lazarus. That, that, now, that's a different Lazarus. But he says, send him. And this is what Abraham told him. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if somebody rises from the dead. If these priests did not listen to God's word, the resurrected Christ would have meant nothing to them. If Pilate meant, if he spent no time in God's word, didn't recognize God's word, didn't acknowledge God's word, the resurrected Christ would have meant nothing to him. The king same in all these cases, these folks that did not get visited, it's because they did not heed God's word. They did not care for God's word. They did not believe. Even if one should rise from the dead, guess who the opposition was still? The same party. Matter of fact, it's not very many weeks later that it's the high priests that call in Peter and John and tell them to stop preaching about Jesus. They did not believe, folks. 
But here's the fact of his resurrection. It's been declared for nearly 2,000 years now. It is a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Would you say, after 2,000 years of proclaiming this fact, that the majority of our world are believers today? No. See, the resurrection of Christ is, is also personal, folks. It's personal. Consider how special it is that the Holy Spirit made this truth known to your heart. If he had not done that, you would not know. Consider how personal it is that God has chosen you as believers in Christ. That he has drawn you to himself to be, as a believer in Christ. That he has caused you to be regenerated. That he has caused you to be redeemed. You see, if it wasn't for his work, we would never have known Christ ourselves. We would have never turned to him. That's why I'm very thankful that the Lord personally worked in my heart that I might believe. This is a personal thing I share with you. That's why I call it of first importance to me. By this, I have been saved. I have a personal Lord and the resurrection is a personal thing. It's permanent. It's powerful. It's personal. But it was also predicted. If I could show you all the verses on this page right now, I would bombard you with passages on how this, this resurrection on the third day was predicted exactly as we see it, as we read it in 1 Corinthians 15. You'd find it in Matthew in several places. Jesus is himself saying those things. In the book of Mark, in the book of Luke, in the book of John, not to mention all the Old Testament passages. But this is what Matthew had recorded. Matthew 20, verse 17 through 19. Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. He said that to him many times. On the third day he would be raised up. On the third day. Now, you would think after hearing it many times, they'd believe it, right? You would think on that third day they'd be lined up in front of the tomb waiting for it. Instead, they were locked into a room someplace because they were afraid. Now, you know what? There was a group that anticipated it. And you're not going to believe who it was. This is how it was recorded in Matthew 27. Verse 62 to 63. Now on the next day, the day after Jesus was crucified, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Right? What a combination. <laughs> chief priests, the Pharisees, there's Pilate, they're sitting there in the room, and this is what they said. Sir, we remembered. Ooh, what do you remember? We remember that when he was still alive... That deceiver said, now they inserted that word, after three days I am to rise again. They knew it. 
And so they had orders given to put guards in front of that tomb. They said, that way, there's no deception. We can't have somebody walking around saying he's risen from the dead. Now, the guards really worked well, didn't they? Uh Oh, by the way, when the guards came back, after they woke up, they went back and they reported to the chief priest and these that, oh, uh, he did rise. They said, here, take this money and don't tell anybody. Guess what? They knew it was true. They had to pay somebody to keep it quiet. No, that's true. It was predicted. Jesus predicted it. Psalm 16, his prediction. Isaiah 53, the prediction. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2 was a prediction. Jonah was a prediction. I said, Jonah? Jonah in the whale? Oh, yes. Jonah in the whale. Jesus says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, even so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in that tomb. That was it, because Jonah came out after three days and three nights, and so did Jesus. Even Jonah testified to it in his, in his whale story. Simply put this way, the resurrection was God's plan from the beginning. There wasn't a plan B. In case he surprisingly died on the cross, now what should we do? This was all perfectly contemplated, perfectly established, Perfectly predicted, perfectly fulfilled. The resurrection was predicted. It was predicted from one end to the other. The prophecies of Old Testament uh, statements had to be fulfilled perfectly, 100% in every detail, or else Scripture is not true. 50% guessing may be good for some things we do. If you want to be a weatherman, maybe. 50%, maybe 75 would look better. How confident would you be in God's word if it was partially true? How would you know which parts to believe and which parts not to believe? Would you like the job of choosing? This is what it says in Isaiah 55, verse 11. God says, So my word, which will go forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty. It will not come back void. It will not come back useless. It will not come back empty-handed without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Every word of the Father is fulfilled perfectly every time. And that was also the resurrection of Christ. It was predicted It was predicted to be accomplished. Exactly three days and three nights, Jesus, after he dies on the cross, and on the third day, it was done. Permanently? Yes. Powerfully? Yes. Predictably? Yes. Personally? Yes. Is it productive? I had to go with another P. Just one more, I think. Productive. Romans 4, verse number 25. He was delivered over because of our transgression. He was raised for our justification. In other words, to be justified means that you can stand before a holy God. And I know 
None of us have the right to stand there on our own. Right? As sinful people, we couldn't do it. Stand before a holy God is absolutely impossible. But justified means that you can stand before a holy God considered not guilty because somebody else bore your guilt. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. He took your place. He took the penalty. He took the guilt. He took the condemnation. He took the wrath. He took the sin. He took it all that we might stand before God in His righteousness, justified. Matter of fact, even Jude says it better. Oh, what great joy! We're going to stand before Him someday. Blameless. Can you imagine that? Blameless and with great joy. I love the way Jude said that. We're going to stand there and say, Amazing. Why? Because Jesus Christ justified us in that resurrection. That's what the scripture says. That's great theological implication, folks. That's application of the resurrection. That goes directly, personally to me. That's what he's done for me. It ought to be productive. You see? The resurrection isn't, it isn't something that God says, Hey, I'm going to put a red mark on their calendar to think about me once a year. That's not why the resurrection took place. It's so that it would change your life forever. That's why it took place. God sent it out to be productive in your life right now. Here's how it says it in Romans as well. So that we can walk in newness of life. We can walk in newness of life. Christ did not die just to put that red mark on our calendar, to give you a day off from work. Therefore, it says in Romans 6, 4, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. It is meant to change you. And if the resurrection of Christ hasn't changed you, if it has not changed the way you live, you might not even know what it is. Because the resurrection is productive. It's productive so that we might walk, so that we might behave in the newness of life. So much different than what you used to be. I love the way Peter described that in First Peter chapter 4. He says, you know... When somebody's saved, they, they realize, they come to this point when they realize the rest of their life, they can't live like they used to. You know, there's that kind of a difference. I'm different now. It's not what I used to be. And matter of fact, he says, even your friends are going to be surprised when they see you. Because you're not who you used to be. They're surprised you don't run with them anymore. Why is all that? Because you've been changed. You've been changed. And changed forever. You want to shock your family and friends? Live out your life in the newness of the resurrection. You will be different. And they will notice it. And then you can tell them why. What has happened to make this this way? I read this just the other day. I thought it was fascinating. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. So, ooh, what a thought. 
This is a passage we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's so simple. I delivered unto you, that is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the passage of the resurrection. And something we should study on a day like today. You know, just recently the world, in their way of saying goodbye to Billy Graham, his tongue has ceased here on this earth in that way, but the message he proclaimed is very much alive. And it always will be, because it wasn't Billy Graham's message. It was God's message. But this is what Billy Graham did say. He says, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, no right-minded person would have glorified anything so hideous and repulsive as a cross stained with the blood of Jesus. An unopened grave would never have opened heaven. So, yes, that's true. So I deliver unto you this morning, that's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Do you know that? Do you believe that? He was buried. That is a fact. Because it sets up perfectly for the next thing. And he was raised from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. That will change you forever. Do you believe it? I hope you do. I hear a lot of people say yes. I hope it's everybody in this room who can say yes to that. Because unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. You must believe in him. He's the only way to the Father. That's the gospel message, folks. I wanted you to hear it this morning. When you go from this place, I hope that you're a different person. If you've never received Christ as Savior, you know there's nothing fancy to it. We don't have to play special music to convince you. You, you, you don't need some fancy words. You don't need some diplomas and doctorates and who knows what not. You don't, you don't need all these trinkets or things to do it. It says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You just right where you are, just say, Lord Jesus, I heard what it said about your resurrection. I believe it. Would you save me? Guess what? You will. You will. I'm proof of that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel message. You do make it so simple to understand three simple words that we see, we understand, about Jesus dying, being buried, and rising again. And without that, Lord, we'd have nothing. We'd have no hope. Thank you for what you've done, Jesus, to save us. To call you our Savior is a precious thing to us. To consider what you did to pay that price for us, that's a precious thing to us. Lord, we turn to you right now and say thank you for loving us that much. That you'd shed your own blood for us and give your own life for us. That we might live forever, and live forever with you. Uh, Lord, I, I just pray for the folks in this room. Maybe there's one heart. If there's just one heart this morning, 
that has finally come to understand and has called out to you to save them, Lord. That would be glorious. And we pray that you do your work because it's your word. And it goes out and it accomplishes what you set it out to do. And we're just praying that that was aimed this way today. And some heart was captured by your glory and grace. We hope so. So many of us here already acknowledge we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. And the events that we celebrate today are the event that changed us forever. And now we walk out of here in the way we should, in the newness of the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Lord, may we be different. We needed the reminder, and now we've heard it. Let us be different, because we know the risen Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you just bless each one in this room. With the simple words that we heard today, those are blessings. But with the relationship they can have with you forever, that is a blessing. And I hope that's true for everyone here today. We give you the praise, the glory, the honor, the power. It's all yours. The dominion is yours. Throughout all eternity, even now, we praise you for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.